So I think that Doug and I had been watching too much of Chip and Joanna Gaines because we had this brilliant idea, let's buy a fixer-upper. It will be fun. It's not fun. <laughs> Doug, hold up your hand. Other one. Yeah. That is a result of our fixer-upper. I'll tell you about that in a second. But we bought a house that needed so much work that when we brought our kids to see it, our daughter Bryn, when she walked in, she looked around and she goes, this place is gross. <laughs> and I said, yes, it is gross. I said, but we can fix it. And when I say we, I mean him. <laughs> because really I'm not doing anything except for picking colors and saying this one and that one. And all this work means that we are at Home Depot all the time, probably four or five days a week we are there. Now, a few weeks ago, Doug talked about how he always walks ahead of me, and I quote, about 10 feet. It's not about 10 feet. It's about 10 yards, especially at Home Depot. I don't know what it is, but when we get there, he just like is on a mission and he takes off. And I have proof. I have been collecting evidence over the last few weeks that he takes off. Would you check out these pictures? There he is. There he is. <laughs> Uh, he doesn't just walk ahead of me, he abandons me. But just to give him, you know, the benefit of the doubt, he kind of gives me warning. He gives me those four dreaded words. He says, I'll be right back. <laughs> no, you won't. <laughs> Why do you lie? You won't be right back. I will be lost in Home Depot and I will not know where you are. I walk around and I know that I look confused. Three times in the last, like, two weeks, someone has come up to me and said, can I help you find something? Each time I have said, yes, yes, you can. You can help me find my husband. The first two workers laughed. The third one said, all right, what does he look like? <laughs> he accepted the challenge. I said, shaved head, beard, blue shirt. He couldn't find him either. Eventually, I just sit on some boxes of tile until he kind of crosses my path. But I'm not mad at him for abandoning me at Home Depot because he is doing so much work for our family as obvious, he has hurt himself yesterday. We had a lovely afternoon and an evening in the ER. Um, you know it's bad when you get there. He hurt his hand, obviously. And the ER doctor goes, let's call the hand surgeon. I'm like, what about an x-ray? No, we, before x-rays, let's, let's get in a specialist. Please pray for him as he may need surgery. He broke his bone completely through, needed stitches, and... Um, yeah, so, you know, to restore a house, it takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of energy on his part, but we know that a house can be fixed. You know, it can be put back together. Hopefully, it won't take too many more ER visits, but eventually, we'll get there. And my question for us tonight is, what about a life? Can a life be restored? What about a reputation that has been broken, cannot be restored? What about relationships that are so severed that two people want nothing to do with each other. Can that also be restored? Last week, Doug talked about two friends whose failures were not final. And today we want to look at an example in the Word of God of somebody who failed, somebody who blew it. You know, he, he started off weak, he started off shaky, but that wasn't the end of his story. His failure was not Final. In this story, we'll see someone who goes from disqualified to restored. Somebody who goes from untrustworthy to useful. 
This is really important for us to continue to talk about because as we walk through this life, we are going to be faced with our own failures and the failures of those around us. And how do we respond? What hope do we have when there is failure, when there is fractured relationships? You know, I love that the Word of God, it includes it all, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It doesn't gloss over that real followers of Christ fall. It doesn't gloss over that real followers of Christ have disagreements and falling outs. You know, I can give you the example and after example in the Word of God of, of strong men of God, of strong women of God who have failed. But you know what we also have in the Word of God? We have this incredible amount of hope and encouragement that failure does not have to be final. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here. And maybe you're not usually in church or, or you wouldn't call yourself a Christian because you feel like you've been disqualified. You know, you feel like you've done too much. You, you've said too much. And there's no way that God could ever want or accept you. If that is you today, I pray that you will see that there is something that has been done for you. Something incredible that would show you that your failures are not final. To show you that it is possible for there to be restoration to every single part of your broken life. You know, there is definitely some overlap between last week's message that Doug gave and, and the message tonight. Um, just like a few weeks ago with Deeper. Doug didn't know what I was talking about on that Thursday, and yet it lined up with what he was talking about that Sunday, same thing happened again. And, you know, our, my kids would say, it's because you guys share a brain. <laughs> you know, after almost 19 years of marriage, I guess we're on the same wavelength. You know, it's not like, um, Mom, can I do this? No, I'm going to go ask Dad. No, if Mom says no, Dad says no. We share a brain. But no, that's not what's going on. <laughs> it's so important for you to know that I really believe the Holy Spirit is trying to drive home this idea of restoration, that each of us would get in our heads and in our hearts that failures are not final. We're going to be in Acts 15 today, and then we're going to look at a few verses in 2 Timothy. Let me just give you a quick background to what's going on. In Acts 13, two men, Paul and Barnabas, are called by God to go preach, to go on a missionary journey. And Barnabas has a relative named Mark or John. Depending on where you find him in scripture, he's John Mark, he's Mark. For today, we're going to call him Mark. And something happens on this trip. Mark suddenly leaves them, and he goes home. So now it's been a couple of years, and Paul and Barnabas want to go back, and they want to see the converts that had come to Christ, to see, are they doing well? Many, many had come to Christ on this missionary trip. You know, they faced a lot of persecution and a lot of hardship, but every time there is persecution, the gospel goes farther and reaches more people. And that's what took place for Paul and Barnabas. And they want to go back and they want to check to make sure that these converts are still growing in their faith. The plan was go as a team. Then something happens. While we go through this story, I want you to think about two things. I want you to think about the life that is restored, and I want you to think about the relationships that are restored. You know, the truth is where there is failure, there is often broken relationships. Those things tend to go together. Usually failure doesn't just affect the person who failed. It has a rippling effect to those who are around them. But even in that, there is hope for restoration. 
So let's get started. In Acts 15, starting in verse 35, it says this, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them. I'm going to butcher this. I do it every time. Paphilia. And had not gone with them to the work. So Barnabas wants to take Mark with them, but Paul does not. Remember I said he left them. This was not a friendly parting. This was not, all right, guys, I'll catch up with you back in Jerusalem. He took off. He abandoned them. Another translation said he deserted them. And, and in that word deserted, you see the pain that he had caused them. Mark was considered unreliable, untrustworthy, a deserter. That was his reputation in Paul's eyes. And so we have to ask this question. Why did Mark abandon them? Why did he leave? Why did he not stay with them? And, you know, we don't know for sure because the word of God doesn't tell us. It doesn't give us the details. But I want to give us a few possibilities. And the first possibility is this. Maybe Mark feared persecution. You know, at this point, Philip had already been martyred for Jesus. Other disciples had already been martyred. Maybe Mark questioned if losing his life for Jesus was really worth it. The next possibility is this. Maybe Mark was discouraged. You know, I said that on their first trip, many, many came to Christ. But at the point that Mark left, they had only seen one convert. Maybe he was discouraged. Maybe he felt like, what am I doing? Is this worth it? Is this even going to have any effect? Last possible reason. Maybe the cost was too high. You know, life for these missionaries was not glamorous. They were not traveling on personal jets like some evangelists are today. I mean, like, there, is no, there was no jets back then. But what I'm saying is there was no prosperity gospel mentality. They knew that, that this kind of work entailed suffering, entailed persecution, entailed beatings. And maybe this was not the life that Mark wanted. Perhaps the reason why he left was for comfort. Whatever the reason, Mark abandoned them. He left. He said, not worth it. Have you ever found yourself running from God or giving up for any of those reasons? Fear of persecution. You know, persecution for us in America is very different than it is for different Christians around the world. But there still is persecution. There is persecution for you and I to stand up for truth, whether you are at school or you are at work or in your family. Maybe it's discouragement. And, you know, it doesn't just have to be the kind of discouragement that Mark had or could have had. It could just be you're discouraged in life. Your life doesn't look like how you thought it would. Maybe the cost is too high. Maybe it's not any of those reasons. Maybe the thing that is causing you to stumble and, and want to run from your faith is because your heart and mind are full of doubts. You don't know what to believe. You don't know if all of this is true, if you can put your faith in it. You know, I've heard of too many in Christian leadership over the last several weeks who have publicly renounced their faith, who have come out and said, not worth it. I no longer 
gonna give my life for this, no longer belief. It's heart-wrenching. I was laying in bed on Tuesday morning and I was reading about another guy and I just sat there laying in bed in tears. You know, this person had, has influence over especially our young people and here he is boldly, publicly proclaiming that Jesus can't be trusted. He said that he had too many unanswered questions. That's his reasoning for abandoning his faith. What does that mean? It means that his doubts became greater than his faith. You know, we don't know if Mark full out abandoned his faith, but we know that he now had this failure over his life. Reputation, deserter, unreliable. And the question is this, was Mark's failure final? Was he now disqualified from being used by God? Was this the end of his story? What about the different people who have publicly come out to say that they no longer believe? Is that the end of their story? Can they be restored? If you're here today and you are far from God, is that the end of your story? If you feel like you have just failed, you have blown it, do those failures have the final word? And if they are not final, what does it take to restore? You know, there were years between the first and second missionary trip. And again, we don't have all the details, but here is what we know. Something happened in Mark's heart and life. Something happened to the extent that Barnabas is willing to give him a second chance. Maybe he saw a turnaround. Maybe he saw genuine repentance. But at this point, Paul would not. And this caused a major falling out. Let's go on in our verses. Verse 39. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. Having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Paul and Barnabas have such a sharp disagreement that they separate ways. Did you ever have a sharp disagreement with another follower of Christ? I have. Wait, what? Christians argue? Christians sometimes don't get along? Are they even Christians if they're doing that? Let me ask you this. Did the conflicts that Paul and Barnabas have make Paul not a genuine follower of Christ? Did it make Barnabas not a genuine follower of Christ? Did their conflict mean one had strong faith and the other didn't? No. Paul and Barnabas, as great men of God as they were, were imperfect and they were not above disagreements and sharp disputes. You know, conflict and disagreements are going to happen. The word of God shows us that. But the question is, will we work through them? You know what I find so interesting about these verses is that Luke, who is the writer of Acts, he doesn't give us any indication of who he thinks is right. He doesn't tell us Paul is right or Barnabas is right. He actually doesn't spend any time on that at all. And isn't it true when we have disagreements, we spend so much time on this idea that, that we are right? Isn't it true that we waste so much time? If we're honest with each other, don't we lay in bed not able to sleep because we're reliving in our head the hurt or the conversation that we had with that person? 
You know, don't we get in the shower and, and we have these amazing arguments where we are doing so well with all the things that we would have, could have, should have said to that person? Instead of fighting to be right and wasting so much time, we need to fight to be reconciled, to put in the time. You know, when we are wronged, it, it is natural to want to be justified, to be vindicated. But instead of who is right and who is wrong, work to be reconciled. You know, working through conflict is not the main point of this message. It is the subpoint. But it shows us that even the sharpest disagreements can be worked through. You know, the relationship with Paul and Mark was damaged because of Mark's failure. The relationship between Paul and Barnabas was affected because, again, of Mark's failure. But it didn't stay that way. See, as we go on in our story, you're going to see that not only Mark was restored, but so were these relationships that were also affected, restored. You know, when Paul is facing death at the end of his life, the one person that he asks for, in addition to Timothy, is Mark. You know, think about that. If it was the end of your life, you knew that it was coming soon, who would you ask for? You would ask for those that were closest to you. You would ask for those that you love. You would ask for those that you trust. And Paul asks for Mark, what does that tell us? Oh man, what an incredible reconciliation they had. Read with me 2 Timothy 4.11. Paul says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me for ministry. Mark is useful for me for ministry. Mark, wait, the same Mark who Paul called a deserter, the same Mark who Paul was not at one time willing to give him a second chance, something changed. You see, Mark went from not only fully reconciled, but fully trusted. He went from unreliable to useful. Mark's life was restored, his purpose was restored, his reputation was restored, and his relationships were restored. And the question is, what restores those things. And there is only one possible answer, and the answer to that is grace. It is grace that restores. It is the gospel that restores. What is the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus came for broken and sinful people to do what you and I could never do in reconciling us to God. He took all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our punishment on himself, and he died in our place as us and for us, so that now all who put their trust in him receive grace. Receive grace upon grace upon grace. Grace for every failure. Grace for every conflict. Grace that will follow you throughout your life, that will pick you back up, that will say failure is not final. Failures don't have the last word because of grace, because of the gospel. This is not just nice words. What Jesus did for us makes broken lives whole. It makes untrustworthy people useful. And it makes failures not final. C.S. Lewis had walked into a conference once where there was a a lot of men talking about different religions. And and they they raised this question, how is Christianity different than every other religion? And and they couldn't come to an agreement. And when they couldn't come to the agreement, C.S. Lewis stood up and said that the answer is easy. It's grace. 
Grace is what's different about Christianity than every single other religion. Grace restores. It restores lives. It restores purpose. It restores relationships. And because of that grace and because of the gospel, Mark's failure was not final. It was just, hear me, this is really important. It was a snapshot of his life, not his entire life. At some point, a change took place in Mark's heart, and I wish we had all the details, but we don't. You know, commenters say that there is a connection between Mark's restoration and his relationship with Peter. You know, Peter, the disciple. We see throughout the New Testament that Mark and Peter spent time together. In 1 Peter, Peter calls Mark his son. Now, he wasn't his actual physical son. He was like a spiritual son. God in his mercy aligned Mark with Peter. This is not a coincidence. Now, why is this significant? Remember Peter, the one who denied Jesus, the one who failed, the one who gave up and said, not worth it, I'm going back to fishing? Peter was also the one who, when Jesus rose, he went to Peter and he did not bring up his failure. Instead, he restored him. said, I have a purpose for your life. Get up and do it. I wish we can hear some of the conversations that took place between Mark and Peter. Maybe they went something like this. Maybe Mark was full of guilt and shame and felt like a failure and his life was over. And maybe he said, Peter, I failed. Maybe Peter answered him back, yes, so did I. Maybe Mark said to Peter, but I abandoned those who needed me most. Maybe Peter said, so did I. I abandoned Jesus at the time of his greatest need. Maybe, just maybe, Peter looked at him and said, Mark, get back up. Your failure is not final. Maybe he reminded him of what grace means. Maybe he reminded him that Jesus came not in spite of our brokenness, but because of it. Jesus is not surprised by our brokenness. That is why he came. He came to bring healing and wholeness and put broken lives back together. You know, I don't know the conversations that Mark and Peter had, but this is what I know. That Mark had a close relationship with somebody that he can look at and see who had failed, who had blown it, but who got back up. And just like Peter, Mark had a choice to let that failure be final or to allow God to restore him. We see not only from Mark's life, but from Peter's life. And I can give you example after example after example that failure is not final. That more important than starting out strong is finishing strong. And we have a life that's been restored, relationships restored. That's what amazing grace looks like. There's a few points of application that I want to make from what we looked at today. And the first is this, God uses broken people. Despite of all of Mark's failures and all of his flaws, God intended to use Mark's life for his glory. Besides all of his missionary work, Mark went on to write a book of the Bible. Do you know what book it is? Mark, (laughs) in talking to my dad about this message, he reminded me that there is this this part in Mark, this story. Now, now Peter gave Mark his firsthand account. And 
there's this one part of the story, though, that couldn't have been from Peter's firsthand account. And it was this. It was a young man who was following Jesus and the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. And when Jesus was arrested, he fled. He took off. He ran. Commentators agree that Mark was likely telling a story about himself. And you know, what we see is that Mark in himself was weak, prone to run away when things got tough, and yet God still chose to use Mark. Why? God only uses broken people. Because that's all that there are. But the difference is that he uses broken people who he makes whole through the gospel. God uses the broken and the weak. And one of the reasons why he does that is because you know what it shows? It shows how great he is. Not how great we are. It shows how incredible his grace is. It shows his power to restore. You know, something that's really important that we see in the way that God uses Mark, and it's this, is that the extent of Mark's restoration was not limited. God didn't say to Mark, Mark, you failed, and so you can follow me, and I'll let you do a few little things, but you kind of need to stay behind the scenes because you blew it. No, he called him to preach the gospel, and he called him to write a book of the Bible. His restoration was not limited. Some of you here think God could never want me. God can never use me. I have failed too much. And I'm here to tell you, get back up. Your failure is not final. And the reason your failure is not final is because the grace of God is greater than all of your failures. Because of that grace, failure can just be a snapshot of your life and not your entire life. Even if right now you are here and you feel like your, your life is just a pile of ashes because of sin, God is able to take that pile of ashes and make something beautiful out of it. God uses broken people. He uses broken people who really understand what grace is so they can communicate, communicate that grace to others. Would you read this with me? He takes broken lives and transforms them into instruments of his grace. Don't discount yourself. Don't disqualify yourself. Don't let somebody else disqualify you. You know, it, in the end, it didn't really matter that Paul at first would not give Mark a second chance. God intended to use Mark. Don't let anyone else disqualify you. Don't let the enemy get into your head and your ear and be reminding you of the things that you have done wrong and cause you to disqualify yourself. If you are far away from God today, he wants you. He waits for you. His grace will be more than sufficient. What does that mean? It means his grace is more than enough. More than enough that you will ever need. His grace is more than enough to get you back up and put the pieces of your life back together. His grace is more than enough to wipe off the dust and now use you to carry that grace wherever you go. My next application is this. Be a Barnabas. Many of God's servants, this is Tom Constable, many of God's servants would have dropped out of ministry had it not been for a gracious Barnabas who was willing to give us another chance after we failed. You know, what's so important is it is not that Barnabas believed so much in Mark. It's that Barnabas believed so much 
and the transforming power of the gospel to restore and change a life. If we look at anybody in our life and we think they are beyond hope and beyond being restored, then I think that there are two things that we have forgotten. And the first thing we have forgotten is the grace that we ourselves have been shown. And the second thing that we have forgotten is that God is not limited. There is no one so broken and so lost that God cannot restore. Years ago, somebody came to me devastated and in tears. She told me she had been at somebody's house and there was a group of other Christians and they were hanging out. And she didn't know most of them. But she knew someone from years ago. And I don't know what this person was thinking, but in the midst of this hanging out, this other person called her out for a sin that she had committed years before. She was embarrassed. She was humiliated. And when she left, all of the guilt and all of the shame that had already been dealt with came flooding back. I mean, there had been genuine repentance. She was completely forgiven and free, and yet there she was again, just weighed down by guilt and shame because of one person's reminder. What that person did made me angry, righteously angry. You know, how dare a forgiven free child of God ever point out the failures of someone else, especially when they are already under grace. That is anti the gospel. That is the complete opposite of what God does with us, with us. Whether public or private, we all have failures. We all have things in our life and in our past that we wish weren't there. But you know what? God never throws them in our face. He never brings them back up. He never holds them over our heads. Like Joey said before, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgression from us. He keeps no record of our debt. He removes them by his grace. And you know what that means? That means that we should be a church that picks each other up that roots each other on, that comes alongside of each other when we fail and when we fall and we say, listen, your failure is not final. Get back up. His grace is enough. His grace is unfailing. Let's be a church full of Barnabases, not a church who walks around and whispers what each other has done and the ways that we have failed. Let's be somebody who comes alongside and builds somebody up with the truth that they are loved, that they are forgiven, that their debt has already been paid in full. Next application, the godly will have conflict. If we don't expect that, we are going to be knocked off our feet when it happens. Listen, I understand that conflict is discouraging. Conflict is painful. But we have incredible motivation to work through conflict. And I'm going to give us two motivations. And the first one is this. Reconciliation is the heart of the gospel. See, God took our broken and our fractured relationship with him and at the cost of the life of his son shed for us, he purchased our reconciliation. See, our reconciliation was costly. And because of how costly It is, you and I must be willing to be reconciled with each other. You know, 
as people whose sins have been forgiven. Not forgiving is not an option for us. But I think often we stop at that point. We, we forgive, but we don't even give hope to the idea of reconciliation. Where there is reconciliation, there is communion again. There's fellowship again. There's trust again. You know, I don't think that Mark and, and, and Paul just tolerated being in the same room together. Remember, Paul asked for Mark. He said, get him. Bring him to me. That means that there was trust. That means that there was closeness. See, only the gospel can, can bring that kind of restoration to a relationship that has been broken. Now, I don't know what relationships are broken in your life, but God is able to restore them. Now, let's just be clear for a second. I am not talking about situations where there has been abuse of any kind, physical, sexual, emotional. Yes, you need to forgive, but you also need to protect yourself. And, and if you need counsel, if that's you, talk to someone on, on what that looks like to forgive and yet to protect yourself. But all these other disagreements, all these other falling outs that happen among genuine followers of Christ, work through them. The next motivation to work through conflict is this. Jesus loves his church. He loves his church. Jesus gave his life for us individually, but he gave his life to purchase for himself a bride. And we are to love the church the way that Christ loves the church. But the truth is that unresolved conflict damages our love for the body of Christ. When there are other people in the room that you have had disagreements with, you know what it does? It makes us start to avoid. You know what? I'm not going to come to church this week because I don't want to see that person. And we pull away and we say, you know what, Jesus, I love you. I'm going to follow you, but, but I'm not going to be part of the church. That is not what Jesus has called us to do. He wants us to be a church, a body that he purchased, that work through conflicts together. And you know, it, it is so worth it. You know, it, there is something freeing in us. How, how often are you carrying around this weight of this, this disagreement or this conflict? And you just, like I said before, you're wasting your time and energy thinking about it. It is worth it. And even beyond being worth it, the gospel compels it. It's hard. It's painful. I don't want to talk to that person. Look, what Christ has done for us was painful. And it was costly. And we need to be willing to do the same. My last point of application is this. Pray that God would keep us. Just as his amazing, as his grace is to restore us, is his grace to keep us. As Doug said last week, there's not one of us that are above, uh, beyond falling. You know, if, if that is our attitude, we're already in trouble. There is a hymn that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. We have hearts that are prone to wander. Hearts that are prone to forget the God that came to rescue us. Hearts that are prone to forget that Jesus is better than anything that this life has to offer. Now, if you have strong faith today, good. In humility, ask God to keep your faith strong. All these people who are renouncing their faith, it is heart-wrenching, like I said. It is also a good reminder 
that our faith and our hope can never be in another person. It must be in Jesus alone. But it's also sobering. I think that before we get out of bed every day, we need to begin to pray, God, keep me. Keep me from falling. Keep me close to you. Keep my heart soft. Keep me from unbelief. Not out of fear, but out of faith. Out of faith, knowing that God is able to keep us from falling. What I want us to walk away with today is that the gospel restores. It restores broken lives. It restores broken reputations. It restores those who fall. It restores broken relationships. I was going to a wedding shower last week. I'm like walking down the street with my little bag of gifts and stuff. And as I'm walking, all of a sudden, I'm holding the handles and the bag is on the ground. And I hear crash. And I stood there for several seconds just in shock. What what do I do now? I picked it up and the bag was full of broken pieces. Um, They were so broken, there was no way to put them back together. It would have been foolish to try to put these broken pieces back together. Some of you think that your life is broken beyond repair. The life of someone you love seems broken beyond repair. You're beating yourself up. You walk through life carrying a weight of guilt and shame. And I'm here to tell you today that Jesus is able to put the broken pieces of your life back together. The gospel restores. It removes our shame. It removes our guilt. It says, get back up. God has a purpose for your life. Your story is not over. The most extreme case we have in scripture of a broken, hopeless person is the demoniac in the gospels. Here is a man oppressed by demons, out of his mind, hurting himself, hurting others where they had to chain him, but yet the chains did not even work. And one meeting with Jesus and he is made whole. He's in his right mind. And he doesn't, he's not just made whole. What does he do? He then goes and he tells others of what Jesus has done for him. You know what this tells us? There is nobody so far gone that Jesus cannot make whole. You know, one of the guys who recently came out and said he abandoned his faith, he said that he couldn't get past that he doesn't see God doing miracles. Now, we all know what it's like to pray for somebody to be healed and not see that happen. And and why that happens and how we respond, that's a whole other message. But if he thinks that God isn't doing any miracles, then there is something that he is missing. A transformed and heart and life is the greatest miracle. Greater than the healing of our bodies is the healing of our souls. I had the privilege of growing up in a home where I got to see what grace looks like, where I got to see that the gospel restores. My father had a drug addiction. My parents' marriage was over. They were separated. They were hopeless. They were hurting. And in one night, they heard the gospel. They heard what Jesus had done for them. They heard what Jesus did with their sin. And everything changed. They were never the same. God put the pieces of their broken life back together. My father freed from addiction. Their marriage healed. But you know what? It didn't just end there. 
God called them to spend the rest of their lives pointing to the grace that changed everything for them. You know what my dad could have done? He could have come to Christ and said, you know what, though? I, I, was, a, I was a drug addict. I, I, my, my marriage was broken. God, I, I love you and I'll follow you, but, but I'll never open my mouth. I'll just kind of keep it to myself. No, God used him. And I look at that and I see that is a miracle. That is a transformed life. That is what the gospel does. That doesn't just happen. You know, it's not just my dad. I can look at my own life and I can see the undeserved grace of God over my life. I could see that I'm not who I was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I look out at you all and I see many miracles. Wherever I look in this room, I see transformed lives. I see the once addicted set free. I see marriages that were hopeless put back together. I see people who didn't want to live another day get back up and walk with joy. That doesn't just happen. Nice stories don't change people like that. That is the power of the gospel. These many, many, many changed lives are undeniable. And you know, when we have eyes to see that these lives are completely transformed by grace, you know what happens with our doubt? Those doubts get crushed. If the enemy ever tries to put doubt in my head, no. I look at what he has done in my life, in those I love, in those in this church, and doubt has no place. I pray that that guy who said he doesn't see many miracles, that his eyes will be open to see the many miracles that are surrounding him. The gospel restores. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, Jesus invites you to come. Come with all of your guilt and all of your shame, and he can make you whole. Wholeness is not found anywhere else. Wholeness is not found in, in trying harder or trying to do better. It is found in the gospel. You know, coming to Christ is not about having a perfect life. You know, if you hear somebody preach that, run. The word of God does not tell us that. Life is still going to be difficult. But you now have the creator of the universe walking through life with you, helping you, guiding you, strengthening you, pouring his grace on you, telling you to get back up when you have fallen. Maybe you think, not me. He would never accept me. Jesus said in John 6.37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Some of you have come to Christ and yet you still doubt that Jesus has accepted you. You still sometimes wondering if you are really his. Look at this verse, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Charles Spurgeon said, among the lost souls in hell, there is not one that can say, I went to Jesus and he refused me. It is not possible that you or I should be the first to whom Jesus shall break his word. Let us not entertain so dark a suspicion. He will not reject you. He will not make you jump through impossible hoops to be accepted by him. He simply invites you to come. If you want to put your faith and trust in Jesus tonight, I want to pray for you in a minute. But before, I just want to pray for all of us as we close. God, we praise you for the transforming power of the gospel. We thank you for your grace that you have poured out on each and every one of us in here, God, that none of us deserve 
Lord God, to stand before you right and perfect and holy, but yet we do because of Jesus. And I pray that you would encourage each one in here that when they fail to get back up, that your grace is more than enough, that that is not the end of their story. We praise you for your mercy that is over our lives. I pray that you'd bring great encouragement today. If you want to put your trust in Christ, there is not a magic prayer that saves you. It's not certain words. You come to Jesus in faith, and you trust that what he did on the cross, he did it for you. But often it starts with calling out to him. And so I just want to help you do that. Would you pray this? Jesus, thank you for coming for me. Thank you for dying in my place, taking all of my sin and all of my shame on yourself to make me right with you. Come into my life. Squash every doubt, every lie that I believe about you rejecting me or not wanting me. Show me how deeply loved I am by you today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we move into a time of worship, I just encourage you, worship with your whole heart. Hold nothing back. You know, how can we hold back when we look at what has been done for us, when we see what it costs to make you and I free and forgiven? Worship him with everything that you have.